This is Search for Truth. Many thanks for your company, and I'm glad you can join us. Today's the last program in our four-part series called "The Power and the Glory of God's Kingdom." Our Bible teacher Brian's called it the Consummate Kingdom, and during the next ten minutes, he's going to talk about it. So, Brian, it's over to you. Thanks, John. A man won a free return ticket for an Atlantic crossing on a luxury liner. He was poor. And decided to take dried biscuits and cheese in a plastic bag on which to live for the duration of the crossing. He was content to eat his meager fare while the other's passengers dined in the fancy restaurants, because he was just so glad to be on this trip of a lifetime. But when he was nearly home, he thought he'd try just one meal in the high-class restaurant. He cautiously asked the waiter the price. The waiter was astonished. Had he not read his ticket? All the meals were included. The moral of such a story for us is that all believers will enjoy eternally the blessings of God's kingdom, but the opportunity of a present foretaste of the same privilege is included on our ticket, as it were, and it would be more than a real shame if we have missed out on it. Central to the Gospels is Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God. He was teaching. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, showing the kingdom of God had arrived along with the time of the messianic age. That's the time of the Messiah. It's referred to in that verse that we've quoted from Mark one and fifteen as the time. The time that was fulfilled was the time of Messiah, and Jesus, the Messiah's primary mission to his people, was to offer them the possibility of final salvation, which at least sometimes. He expressed by using the term "kingdom of God." It's better, he said in Mark chapter nine, to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, than to be cast into Gehenna. Jesus set entering the kingdom in parallel with entering life and avoiding hell or Gehenna. It seems difficult to disassociate this fully. From the final perspective, which we've been including in our treatment of the kingdom of God, but as we've seen, the Lord spoke of the kingdom of God as a historical process, one which had been inconspicuously begun, but which was growing to a very conspicuous result. Jesus could say, "The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed which grew." But there again, verses such as. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's Mark fourteen, and also in Luke twenty-one, where Jesus said, "Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also." When you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Verses like these obviously point ahead to more consummate expressions of the kingdom in the future. Equally, the apostle Paul's testifying about the kingdom of God was in terms of trying to persuade unbelieving Jews sometimes about Jesus while making known God's salvation to them. If we use Acts. Chapter twenty-eight, as an example, the key points in Paul's preaching there seem to be the identity of the Messiah, God's future purposes for Israel, and the inclusion of the Gentiles. 
Here is, in fact, what we read there in Acts chapter 28. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. So Paul's preaching of the future kingdom in that instance was certainly bound up with his preaching of the Messiah from the Old Testament and it homed in on the preaching of the salvation that's to be received now by faith in the case of Jew and Gentile alike. The urgent need for these unbelievers was to get right with God and so be sure of final salvation from the wrath to come. The Lord himself distinguished two destinies in his kingdom preaching when he said, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. It's also possible to discern the not yet here aspect of the kingdom in some of the kingdom references in the later Bible letters. For example, when Paul asks, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. And elsewhere, in Ephesians 5 and 5, he says, No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then finally, to the Thessalonians, he says, Among the churches of God, in the midst of afflictions which you endure, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Is Paul not drawing down lessons from the future into the present? What will certainly be true then must also be true now in churches of God. Of course, there was a contemporary application, and biblically it was to the spiritual expression of the kingdom in New Testament churches of God. Notice, we're not called because we're worthy, but we're to become worthy because we've been called. The sense here is both a present work in progress as well as the ultimate kingdom expression to come. Condition must be aligned to position, but the latter, our position, is what determines our present kingdom status. Summarising again, what we've seen is this that all believers today belong prophetically to the coming kingdom in the age that's yet to come. And also that those among them who express obedience to the New Testament commands of the king also express the kingdom spiritually as they live now in this present church age. And this condition of obedience is comparable with the obedience required of Israel nationally when they were asked to obey God's Old Testament commands so that they too could be God's kingdom on earth at that time in history. And finally, we've seen it's only natural and biblical to identify God's rule now with the sphere in which submission to it is most clearly seen. That is, where Christian testimony is organised biblically 
in a way that answers to what we find in the Old Testament, in which faithful Israel then expressed, as we've said, God's kingdom. This was even explicitly identified as the Israel of God in the New Testament, that is, those believers who followed obediently in that way that answered to the Old Testament. In case the question is still asked, which commands must we obey in order to be certain of being in God's kingdom today? Is it as long as we ensure that we are baptised? Or is it as long as we avoid same-sex unions? Or any other string of such things that might be asked? But on what basis could it ever be legitimate for us to be selective? Must we not go by the whole pattern of sound teaching? in terms of those words, at least, that we find in 2 Timothy 1 and 13, the pattern of teaching. The guiding standard set in the Old Testament is all that the Lord has spoken will do and be obedient. Must we not then emulate in every applicable aspect the community life of the first century disciples? We've no reason to think that anything short of that complies with the standards God set out in his word, whereby we may now share in that kingdom privilege, which all will share in when sin, disobedience and differences of view will no longer be an issue in the future. Let's glimpse that future glory again in conclusion. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, that is to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God, who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28. Believers in Israel and outside of Israel, by which I now mean Christian believers, will possess in fullest measure the hope which Simeon, Anna and Joseph of Arimathea once cherished at the time of Christ's first advent. In that future day, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. Each will be like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. So said Isaiah in chapter 32, the first two verses. And notice the emphasis on the king reigning righteously. That mention of righteousness sets the tone for the present expression of the kingdom in Matthew 6.33, in which we are told to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness because it's explained that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14 verse 17. The life that's truly shaped by the mould of the apostles' teaching will be a life of day-to-day practical righteousness, as shown by Romans chapter 6. What will characterise the future phase of God's kingdom certainly ought to characterise the present phase, as well as it did 2,000 years ago at the beginning of the church age. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things shall be added unto you Hallelujah
There's a transcript booklet for this series. If you'd like one or more for group study, ask for the title The Power and the Glory of God's Kingdom. And as this is the last programme in this series, then this is the last opportunity you'll have. And you can contact us by email or by post. Uh, here's the address. Search for Truth, Box uh, 70115, Chilomani, Blantyre, Malawi. And the email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. You can also find past programmes and helpful material on our website at www.searchfortruth.org.uk. So that's all for today. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company. And I hope you enjoyed today's talk and the series if you've been following do join us again, please, next week, if you can, for the start of an interesting series on how we can maintain our spiritual strength and power as Christians. So, until then, it's our very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, studio technician David, our singers, and me, John. So, goodbye for now, and may God richly bless you. <laughs>